about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. I'm reading from Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Beloved, the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29 to 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, let's pray again as we uh, think about that scripture. Father, we give you thanks for your word and your faithfulness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask you, please, now as we reflect on those readings that you would speak and show us your son, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Who, who is this one that we celebrate at Christmas time? Uh, we know the names, of course. It's, it's Jesus, of course, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of God, Emmanuel. But do, what, do we know what those names mean? 
Can we grasp more fully, more truly, who, who this child really is? What, what he really means? One of the gifts of the Old Testament prophecies that we've been looking at over the Advent season, uh, one of the gifts they give us is to the chance to grasp who Jesus is in new ways and freshly by looking at him from a different angle. It's like you, you, you take a statue you're familiar with seeing from one angle and you go around to the side and, and get a new perspective. And our final Advent text for this season from Isaiah chapter 11, uh, which Megan just read, it does just this. It gives us a wonderful, fresh perspective of, on Christ that I think, I hope, will help us appreciate him more deeply at Christmas time. Uh, There is a traditional distinction in theology between the person and the work of Christ. Uh, These are the two topics, the person and the work of Christ, that you need to understand if you want to understand Christ properly. Um, And actually, the person and the work of Christ is the perfect framework uh, with which to appreciate our passage today from Isaiah 11. Uh, It speaks first about the person of the coming Messiah, who he is, and what he will be like. And then it speaks of his work, what he will do. Uh, you've got an outline there if you want one. That's, that's where we're going. So let's look at these in turn. The person of the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. First, the person of Christ. Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks, um, at a terrible time in Israel's history, the prophet Isaiah promised that a Messiah was coming a child who would bring salvation and peace. And now in chapter 11 of Isaiah, he repeats this promise. A a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. We're up to, uh, if you can see it, we're up to, this this is the the stump and the shoot. That's that's what this artwork was about. And actually, uh, there's another reflection on it in our Advent series in the emails this week. Uh, This image of a shoot from the stump of Jesse is easy to understand once you remember that Jesse is the name of David's dad. David's King David's father was called Jesse. So Isaiah is here. He's promising a new king who will come in the line of David. The image of a a shoot from the stump is a powerful one. Uh, Have you ever seen... who, Who here has seen a shoot grow from a stump? Yeah, I've seen it many times. It, you know, it does happen. It's not just an idea. A tree is cut down and you have the stump, um, right down to the stump, but there is still life in it, in the roots. Uh, and suddenly a shoot appears from the stump and new life when it, it all seemed like it was over and finished. And that's the image Isaiah uses for the king who's going to come. It will look like it's all finished, he says. It will look like there's nothing left. The line of David has ended, but then... A shoot will come from the stump. And then Isaiah goes on to describe what this coming king will be like. And what he says is striking. Have a look at it there in your reading. It's verse 2 in your outline. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The decisive thing about this king, Isaiah wants to say, will be the presence of the Spirit of God in his life. The Spirit will rest on him and stay with him 
and empower him to be someone whose whole life is lived in the power and presence of God, whose own spirit is simply the fear of the Lord. This passage draws our attention to the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Uh, In previous weeks, I hope you remember, we noticed the role of the Holy Spirit in the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. It's the Holy Spirit who makes this baby appear there. Um, And Jesus, we say in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever kind of noticed, but it is actually striking that the, the Creed doesn't just say he was born of the Virgin Mary. I mean, that's miraculous enough, but it actually, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. There's not a lot about the life of Jesus in the creed, but those two things are said. But the moment at which we see the role of the Spirit most clearly in the life of Jesus is actually at his baptism. In our second reading, we heard John the Baptist's report of this moment in John's Gospel. It's in all the Gospels this moment, but Uh, Here it is in John, and John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. There's a famous artwork of this, but there's thousands of icons and artworks of this moment. John's words there, they echo Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah says the Spirit will rest on him. And John says, the Spirit came and remained on him. You know, Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit will rest. That is, he won't just be empowered by the Spirit for a moment, for a specific task. The Spirit's presence will define his whole existence. This is, in fact, another way of talking about the divinity of Christ. Jesus is not just a man uniquely empowered by God. Lots of people like that in the Bible. But Jesus is not just that. He is a man who is God, upon whom the Spirit of God rests, just as the Spirit rests eternally upon the Son in the Father's love. In Jesus, humanity has been enfolded into the divine being. By describing this in this way, we actually catch sight of something distinct and wonderful about Jesus. He is the one in whom the Spirit of God is finally and fully present, empowering and enabling a life which exceeds every other human life because it is lived fully and utterly in God. You see, the one we celebrate at Christmas, friends, is the Spirit King, the Spirit's King, the King in whom God is utterly present, without remainder and reservation. He is the place in which God has truly come to be with us, giving wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge in the fear of the Lord. I just hope these words of Isaiah just give you a new angle by which to appreciate the the stupendous truth of Christmas, that, that God came to be with us, 
that the Spirit of God that rests upon the Son and the Father's love in eternity rested upon the man, the baby Jesus Christ. What majesty. But this leads Isaiah naturally to what this king will do, the work of Christ. This is our second point. So Isaiah actually has many things to say about what the Messiah will do, but what he says here at this point is that the Messiah will judge justly. Very interesting. That's what he says this Messiah will do. Have a look at it there from the verse 3 in your, it's in your sheet, so I'm not going to put it on the screen. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. Notice two interesting things about what Isaiah says there. First, notice the contrast. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or hears with his ears. But rather, the contrast, he will judge with righteousness and justice for the needy and the poor. This is a comment about the danger of appearances. We all know that appearances can be deceiving. Uh, People can be swayed by how things seem on the surface. And this is always a threat to justice. Um, But it's a particular problem for the poor and the needy who are often not able to present themselves or explain themselves as well as the rich and well-to-do. It's a well-known problem, actually, in, in, in law and justice that poorer people tend to get steeper penalties from the law. But it's not an easy problem to solve, actually, because what choice does any judge have but to judge by what they see and hear? I mean... In the end, that's all they've got. What other access can they have to the truth of things? How can justice reach past what is seen and heard to the real truth of things in a way that is justifiable? Well, this king will do it, says Isaiah. He will judge with righteousness and with justice. Actually, the word translated justice in the second line of verse 4, if you're looking carefully, or the second part of verse 4, where it says, with justice he will give decisions, that word's actually an interesting, literally it's on level ground. Uh, We would say a level playing field. It's what we want from justice, actually. Equity, fairness for the rich and the poor and the powerful and the weak to be on the same plane but judged by the same standard, and that is what Isaiah says this king will do. He's not actually promising that that just some kind of special treatment for the poor. He's just saying it's going to be fair. And so the poor will often win. The second thing to notice about what Isaiah says here, there's the contrast, the first thing. The second thing is the odd images that are used in the second half of verse 4. We hear these violent statements, he will strike the earth, he will slay the wicked. But how is he going to do that? It's surprising. With the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. The judgment this king will bring will simply be, 
It will simply not be of the same order as the judgment that kings and armies and courts bring. It will somehow be wholly the power of speech and truth. Our justice system aspires to be humane. It's actually uh, the legacy of Christendom. Um, Though now is not the time to go into it, mercy and punishment was an emphasis of Christianity from very early on when they had any influence on the Roman rulers. But our justice system aspires to be humane. We don't use corporal or capital punishment, and we try to treat people with respect. Except we can't manage it. I don't just mean that we fail and that our prisons sometimes do use terrible physical violence, though sadly that is sometimes true. But what I mean is that even when we succeed, our justice system relies on a constant use of force. Police have to use force. Courts and prisons have to use restraint. Imprisonment is still fundamentally violent. And why is that? It's because our words lack power. Even the words spoken by judges in sentencing, they cannot themselves achieve the justice they speak of. They have to be backed up with force. But the king who is coming, says Isaiah, will only need to speak. It will be enough for him to speak. He will be able to affect justice simply by speaking. His words will come with a truth that is simply effective in itself. I think this is what we really long for, for a justice that is simply telling the truth, a judgment that is not open to contest, that people can't resist, but simply and utterly compelling and effective, and that brings justice just by being declared. What What an extraordinary thing that would be. And you know, the Gospels tell us that something like this was one of the things that most stood out about Jesus. In Luke's Gospel, we read, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words are these? What words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. Jesus was able to heal sickness and deal with evil simply by his command. It was the kind of justice that Isaiah said the Messiah would bring. Friends, Jesus Christ brings a justice beyond anything we can find here and now. And that is the justice we long for. Perfect righteousness in accordance with what is really true. However things might appear on the surface. Justice that's not swayed by power and wealth, but is simply right. And justice that is not contested and that is perfectly effective. Done just by giving the command, by speaking the truth. And, you know, wonder of wonders... Jesus has brought this justice in a way that brings not condemnation, but hope. 
This is the surprise of the gospel. Isaiah actually couldn't see this clearly yet, though later he did speak of it. But this is what we can definitely say from our point of view on this side of Christ's coming. That this promise of perfect justice was fulfilled in the end when the Messiah gave his word of judgment by his own death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul was just blown away by this. The whole first half of Romans is, is basically him trying to explain in as clearly and properly as he can how extraordinary it is that when the righteousness of God arrived, when the justice of God arrived, it meant that we were justified and not condemned. And so he wrote many, many thousands of words. What a shock that is. But you see, the Messiah's judgment in the end does not simply slay the wicked, but it brings them back from the dead, forgiven and justified. In the end, it was on the cross that the king struck the earth with the rod of his mouth. He took the penalty upon himself so that through him the ungodly might be justified and yet there might be justice. Extraordinary, the work of Christ. So let me finish then by just reminding us that there can be no greater privilege, no greater honour than to serve this king. I'll illustrate this badly with reference to the fine, critically acclaimed and thoughtful 1996 movie, The Rock, starring Ed Harris and Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. Ed Harris, over there on the right, uh, he plays a rogue general who steals a number of VX gas rockets in order to gain ransom money from the US government uh, that he wants to give to the families of soldiers who died. I know, amazing premise. At the end of the movie, when everything falls apart, his right-hand man, who's this guy, he says, it has been the greatest honour of my life to serve with you, General. Now, maybe we didn't need the reference to The Rock, but that is the sentiment. It came into my mind as I was preparing this movie, and I thought, oh, The Rock, haven't thought about that in a while. But that's the sentiment I actually want us to feel. And I don't think we always have access to that sentiment very easily these days, that it's an honour to serve with someone. But to serve with Jesus, indeed to serve him, is simply the greatest honour and privilege. To serve Jesus as our captain and our king. There can be no greater honour for a human life. For he is the one on whom the Spirit of God rests. In whom the fullness of God dwells. And he is the one who has brought and will bring perfect justice, finally establishing righteousness on earth. You know, you can put up with a lot when you know that you serve him. Insults, perhaps, from family or friends, the loss of opportunities and freedoms, those things are hard 
They are hard. But they are but faint shadows in the light of the knowledge that you are enlisted in this king's service. That knowledge has sustained countless Christians in the face of the greatest indignities. It sustains today thousands of Christians persecuted and in prison around the world. They press on, they even rejoice in the knowledge that one day the Lord of Lords will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, tomorrow we celebrate the birth of the King of Kings who came in the power of God to bring a justice that brings life to the world. Can there be any greater privilege, any higher honour than to serve him? listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.